Would you please be seated? Uh, sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. A very short couple of verses, but a lot packed in them. And so here... Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come into to your word, the inerrant, infallible word you have given us, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and our minds to see truth. We pray that you would lead us and show us the glories of the cross, and that this would not just be knowledge for our heads, but Lord, that we would be motivated, and we would fall more in love with you, and we would we will live lives of faith and repentance for you and for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder how you handle it when someone asks something of you. So I have a truck, so sometimes I get that question, right? You know, somebody wants help moving something. You know, maybe you tense up, like, oh man, somebody wants something from me. Make a quick decision. Maybe you delay giving an answer. You kind of leave somebody on read. You know, you just, I'll get that one later. Requests come to us all day long through every channel we can imagine. In person, email, phone, text, um, all sorts of things. You go to the mall and somebody wants to sell you Girl Scout cookies. Would you want to buy these cookies? You have to make a decision, right? We make decisions. Can I, can I share this new business opportunity I have with you, right? We have friends from high school we haven't seen in 20 or 30 years that all of a sudden want to make an appointment with us. I suppose if you're like me, it kind of depends on the request and also who's making it. Uh, really, that pretty much makes all the difference. Do I know the person? D- do I have common interests? What do I think they're going to ask of me? Well, today in our verses, the Apostle Paul is doing exactly that. He's making an ask of us. He's making a request. He's making a request to his readers in Rome, and, and by, by virtue of it being the Word of God, also to you and I. And it's a formal and it's a far-reaching request. He's asking for nothing less than for you and I to give up our lives and sacrifice to God. And our job this morning is to seriously consider what he's asking of us. And more importantly, why is he asking it of us? His request doesn't come out of thin air, though. He's not just, you know, uh, sending an email or a request to these people that he hasn't established a relationship with. As we see, it's, it's in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. So he's been going through this discourse, this lengthy letter and this work that he has sent to them, and he waits until chapter 12 to even make this request. So to understand that, we kind of have to know more about the entire book. Obviously, we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to preach on the first 12, first 12 chapters uh, before we get to this right now, but a simple outline will suffice to kind of just get the idea of what Paul's been trying to accomplish in this letter. And so here's what a simple outline of the book of Romans looks like. Chapters 1 through 11, salvation in Christ. Chapters 12 through 16, the Christian life. That's literally the most simple outline you could ever make of Romans. And so our verse this morning is at the very beginning of this new section of the book. 
this section on the Christian life and what that looks like. And so if I was going to use a metaphor to explain to someone the, out, the outline of Romans, I would say that the gospel is like a car. In the first 11 chapters are Paul showing us how the car wor- works. He's popped a hood. He's, he's like, look at this gasket and this wiring and all the car things that I don't know anything about. But Paul does. And he's showing his readers the intricate details of this glorious thing called the gospel like a car. And he shows and teaches things like how God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. Okay? He teaches that God is the righteous judge of all mankind. And we see that no one is good on his own, but all fall under righteous condemnation of a holy God. And yet he doesn't leave us in that situation. He gives us Christ. Paul shows us that no one, not even Abraham, is justified before God on the basis of law-keeping. He reveals to us that the pattern of salvation from the very beginning going back to Genesis to the present day has always been faith, that we can have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus, the obedient, righteous Son of God. So that's the first 11 chapters. Paul then closes the hood of the car, taps it a couple times, and says, I want you to get in and drive. I want you to go now and live a Christian life in light of all these truths. He wants us to get in the gospel car and drive down the road. So chapter 1 through 11 answered the question, saved from what? And chapters 12 through 16 answers the question, saved for what? And so we're going to look at this request, the beginning of this saved for what? This Christian life in three parts. And part one is this, the reason for his request. The reason for his request. So we'll have three parts. Part one, the reason for his request. And the answer is simple, the mercies of God the mercies of God. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. His many mercies, his continued mercies. It wasn't a one-time mercy. These are mercies that are ongoing. Their effect is even now going forth in your life. This is a formal and gracious thing he's asking. He's actually not demanding here in this letter. Again, it was written in Greek. We have the English translation. So kind of having some understanding helps to realize that he's being very gracious here. He's not wanting his readers to do what he says because, you know, he's an authority. Um, he, he wants them to taste and see the mercies of God. And though his, his language is formal, it is incredibly gracious. He's not throwing around his title as an apostle or trying to say, well, I'm, I'm an authority, I'm the pastor, so you should do what I say. You know, he's being very nice. And that makes sense because we know that you can't force someone to do something from the heart through force. It doesn't work. And so Paul starts by saying, look at the mercies of God. I appeal to you by these mercies. And he doesn't just mean the general grace that falls on all mankind, by the way. You know, everybody experiences God's grace. We call it, you know, general grace. Everybody gets good things from God, whether you're a Christian or not. But that's not what Paul is uh, uh, applying or appealing to here. The diffused blessings of general grace and providence, they're not sufficient for a person to give himself to God as a sacrifice. You know, think of like a nice sunset or the beauty of creation maybe you've gotten to experience, the joy of holding a baby in your arms, God providing for us things like food and families and meaningful work. These are all blessings from God, God's hand, and we should be thankful for them. But these blessings fall on the godly and the ungodly alike. They fall on people who confess Jesus as Lord and those who say there is no God. They alike share these blessings to come down from God alone. And these blessings aren't sufficient to motivate our souls to lay down on the altar of sacrifice. 
And so when Paul writes by the mercies of God, he's thinking about the one all-inclusive mercy on which the entirety of his life and this letter has been focused. It's the gift of Christ. All mercies in our life flow through Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. And this kind of gets at the main difference between a Christian life and what I would call a worldly moral life. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's not a Christian at all, in fact, knows nothing of God, but they're very moral. In fact, you look at their life and it's pretty good. I know a number of people like this. Um, Also, I work in a secular institution. I work in in the United States Navy. So I, I, I see all sorts of people but I'm always amazed sometimes that there are many people who, who just seem to actually live very morally and yet they have known nothing of God. They might hold things like sacrifices of value, serving others. They may say that justice and mercy and love are all important, but the motive is completely different, isn't it? It's completely different. At least it should be. A few years back when we were living in California, I remember some people had these signs up in their yard. Maybe they did that here in New York, too. I don't, I don't know. Um, they were popular at the time. And the sign said something like this. We believe all lives are equal. Black lives matter. Love is love. Science is real. Kindness is important. And we should love our neighbors. Or something like that, right? You, maybe you've seen those signs. Um, a Christian can look at those signs and say, yeah, okay. All that stuff I can agree with. At least maybe the plain meaning of it. Certainly there's, you know, political baggage you may or may not want. That's not my point, but my neighbor who puts that sign up, who knows nothing of Christ, we can agree that we should love our neighbor. You're not going to find somebody in the world who says, don't love your neighbor. But the motive, and dare I say what it looks like to actually love your neighbor, is entirely different. Entirely different. So what Paul is getting at here, it's a matter of motive. He's foc- he focuses our attention on motive before really asking us to do anything specific. Proper motivation is necessary before you go do something hard and difficult. We know that. In fact, you ever seen a war movie or a sports movie, right? They're, they're similar in the, and it's, there's almost a cliche that before the big game or the big fight or the battle, the leader stands before the troops and giving a pep talk, right? We can do this. Let's go out there. Give 110%, which is always a funny phrase, 100, you get it. okay. ESPN loves to show the locker room before the big game because everybody's interested in how a leader is going to motivate the people to go and do something hard. Well, Paul is the leader here. And he's trying to motivate us to do something really hard. And his inspired tactic to motivate us is by reminding us of the mercies of God because it's the only motive that will work. It's the only motive that will work. Oddly enough, I believe our society is obsessed with morality, but it's a really strange dynamic because the more our society is focused on doing the right thing and being on the right side of history, the more morally corrupt it seems to be. You see, on one hand, our society espouses virtue and stewardship and equality, and on the other hand, it celebrates depravity and wickedness. If you don't believe me, go look at the top songs right now on any billboard chart, and go look at the lyrics. Rather, don't do that. Don't do that. Those are the things that we celebrate as a culture, all while saying these other virtuous things are important. The motivation is completely different. So even when the world's morality lines up with the Christian morality, we're operating off of a different program behind the scenes. 
The Christian strives for these things out of a gratitude for the mercies of God and a sense of obedience to God's word. You know, obedience is not a word you hear preached a lot. It's not a word you're going to see a lot of books. You know, the top, if I were to write a book and it was obedience to God's word, it probably would not be a bestseller. But it is part of the Christian life. Obedience to God's word. word. And so while the world seeks virtue from a hum- humanistic ideal or pragmatism or even what I call like a moral hedonism, like doing right things because it makes you feel good, right? I give to charity because I feel good. Like it makes your life better. That's moral hedonism. It's a pleasure you get. Apart from faith, a person who tries to live morally uh, is only, they're trying to reach the highest form of humanity they can. They're trying to reach the highest form of humanity. But the, the believer lives morally to please and glorify the high king of heaven. That's the difference. A Christian who lives morally is trying to please our Lord. We're trying to show our love and gratitude to him. The person in the world who's trying to live more, more, you know, a moral life is just simply trying to be the best version of themselves. So Paul doesn't appeal to our humanity or our decency or our pragmatism, or even that we're image bearers of God, which we are. He appeals to us based on the received mercy from God alone. It's the one motive to which Paul can appeal with any hope of it being powerful enough to stir your hearts and my hearts to do something. There was a Baptist minister named Alexander uh, McLaren in the 19th century, and he noted this. He noted that while Paul was ministering in Rome, while he was, you know, house arrest in Rome, preaching the gospel, doing all that, the philosopher and moralist Seneca, uh, who was famous for teaching people to live a moral life, he was active in Rome. So they were were going on at the same time. And Seneca was one of the loftiest of the ancient moralists. He was also the childhood teacher of an emperor named Nero, which you might have heard of Nero before. Uh, Infamous Nero, not famous, infamous. And Seneca would have re-echoed from the heart any of Paul's moral teachings to love others and to serve, but he would never have echoed his motive. And so this this Baptist minister, he writes this. He writes that while Seneca taught, Seneca taught his moral message, Rome was a cesspool of moral putridity and Nero butchered. Nero was famous for for butchering Christians. If you didn't know, that's, that's what Nero, he did. He He murdered and he butchered Christians in the most brutalic way possible. Uh, McLaren writes this, So it always is. There may be noble teachings about self-control, purity, and the like, but an evil and adulterous generation is slow to dance to such piping. So what was true then is true now. Any appeal to moral living apart from faith in Christ is at best ineffective, and at worst an abomination to God. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. You know, in my ministry as a Navy chaplain, I do a lot of marriage counseling. Uh, in fact, I track my counseling topics every month. And I think of the, you know, 11 and a half years I've been doing chaplain ministry, maybe only a handful of times has a top counseling topic in a month not been marriage or family, which is kind of shows some of the stresses military face. But most of my counseling is with people who are not Christians or, or very, you know, very little of God. And so often the reason the couple is struggling is it's not because they're bad at communication, although they are. It's not because they have hidden expectations, although they do. It's not because they live a very stressful life away from family and they move constantly. Again, they do. It's because the mercies of God are unknown to them. You know, I could teach all the conflict resolution skills in the world, 
I got it. I got a book I can pull out. It's not that hard. But until a heart has experienced the mercy of God, it will never show mercy to someone else. Until a heart has felt the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge, it will never show love to another. And until a heart has been on the receiving end of sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, it will never give up anything for anyone. But when Christ is meditated on, he's accepted, he's introduced into the will and the heart, that is the power that captures hearts, alivens spirits, and enables us to live for God. You see, apart from the constraining motive of the love of Christ, all the cords with which we try to bind our unruly passions and sinful desires are worthless. So I say this, if you're struggling to feel motivated to offer your life as a sacrifice to God, I suggest it's because you're unaware of how much mercy you have truly received. And the solution is not to try harder, but it's to know more of his grace. So that's part one. Part two is the request. Part two is the request. I'm not even sure if people do formal wedding invitations anymore. Um, you know, at least when um, Jen, Jen and I got married almost 20 years ago, we still, we did the formal wedding invitations with the fancy script. And I remember we went and picked it out and it was like, you know, uh, really nice cardstock with uh, special printing and, you know, as fancy as we could possibly be. And even the wording on the wedding invitation was very formal. It was something like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so request the pleasure of your company at the wedding of their daughter, Jennifer, to Mr. Benjamin Shear at this church on this date. You know, nobody talks like that. But in an invitation, it, it made sense in a very formal invitation. And I suppose the reason for the formality is trying to show how, like, important of an event it is, right? The more formal you invite something or the more formal you present it, you're really showing how important it is and how monumental the thing that is being done, the event, um, how comprehensive. And, and Paul does this as well. His request, again, is gracious, but it's very formal. And he hints at how serious and comprehensive it is. He knows full well he's making a big ask. And he tells us, uh, 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 let me pull it back up here. I need to make sure I read it again. Where did I put my bulletin? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul uses this word here, body. He's appealing to us by all those mercies to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what he's asking us to do. That's the request. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This word for body, it most definitely does mean your physical body. But in a figurative sense, he's also meaning our energies, our time, our talent, our treasure, those types of things. We can present our bodies to God in service through all sorts of activities. In fact, just a few verses down the page in Romans, and, and really the rest of the letter, Paul explains that we all have different gifts in the body of Christ, and we use them for his service. There's no you know, prescription here to present our bodies to God in one specific way, but rather it's part of a larger body, this union of Christ, this body of Christ that we're a part of, we contribute, we offer, we give in the ways that God has gifted us according to the measure of faith that he assigned us and the abilities he has placed in our life. The minister McLaren, McLaren, he writes this, he says, the master word for the whole Christian life is sacrifice. 
sacrifice. Again, that's probably not a super hot-selling book title. You know, hey, come join us, sacrifice, right? Sacrifice means to give something up for the sake of someone or something else. And in case no one told you before, your life as a believer, it, it should be marked by sacrifice. There should be sacrifice in your life. And Paul, again, Paul's not trying to tell us the ins and outs of how to do that legally in your life. That's not the point he's getting at. I know this is hard to preach, but it's the truth of Scripture. There are no part-time Christians. We wholly belong to God, first as those created in his image, and second as those bought by the precious blood of Christ. We are not our own. And so offering our lives, our energies, our bodies, and sacrifice to God is nothing less than what we owe him as our creator. And that's why it's called a reasonable or spiritual worship at the end of verse 1. Uh, ESV translation is what we have here in the bulletin is what I normally read as well. If you have, I think, the NIV, it says, uh, which is your, your um, reasonable worship, spiritual or reasonable. They're kind of different translations of the same word. Uh, it, it really doesn't make much of a difference which one you go with. Both have merit, and they don't really change the application. But, but I think, uh, along with John Calvin, that the better translation is actually reasonable. This is your reasonable worship. Because Paul is saying, what I'm encouraging you to, you to do, to offer your life as a living sacrifice to God, it is nothing but reasonable. It's consistent with logic. It just makes sense. God has done great things for you. He loves you. He is for you. Everything he does in your life is for your good. He never leads you astray. He never leads you to a pasture that is not green, ever, period, full stop. Why would you not give yourself fully to a God and a shepherd like that? So Paul uses this language of sacrifice, and it keys us in that the request he is making, God accepts no dead sacrifices. I don't know if you remember that from the Old Testament. Under the Jewish laws, the sacrifice had to be a living animal um, without spot or blemish, holy. It's not a sacrifice for a, for a person to give up a dead animal. You, don't, you would never take it to the, the priest in the Old Testament, roadkill, and say, here's my sacrifice. Like that, It would literally not allow it. It's crazy, because it's not a sacrifice to give up something that is dead. And so too are we to present our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice was something that was dedicated to the Lord in totality. And you knew that because it died. It was lost to you. You, you sacrificed a sheep, that sheep was lost to you, right? All value of it is gone. It was lost to the person who has sacrificed it. And so too are our lives to be lost to our own use and desires. Now, we're not, we don't lose them in death, unless God calls us to that. But we lose our lives in service to our own desires. We're, we're still alive. It's a li- we're a living sacrifice. But we're living now for another, rather than for our own desires and our own goals and aims. It's a complete giving up of the thing for the Lord, dedicating our bodies. No day off, no pause for a pandemic, or because we want to go to the beach, No vacation days in the Christian life. There is no corner of your life that you can quarantine from his all-encompassing call to sacrifice. God rightly claims our entire lives as his for his service. I told you this was a big ask by Paul. He's not coming and saying, I need you to help in the nursery. He's like, I want all of you because God wants all of you. It's a big thing. When we offer him our lives in faith, they become holy and acceptable in which he is pleased. And do you see how this call is impossible without a right understanding of his mercies? 
This is a heavy thing for Paul to ask, but it becomes light and reasonable and logical when we put it on the scale with the mercies received. Now, and I do want to make sure you hear me on one thing before we move to part three, okay? Please hear me. This is not a legalistic call, a legalistic call to sacrifice, okay? I'm not, Paul is not trying to make us a bunch of legalistic Pharisees looking around at each other saying, have you given up this amount of money or that? It's not what this is about. I think for most of us, I feel confident in saying this. I, I do. I think for most of us, God calls us to sacrifice in very normative ways. And what I mean by that is we're called to sacrifice our lives and our stuff, our time, our talent and treasure in very ordinary ways. You know, not necessarily in extreme pietistic gestures. Maybe God is calling you to give up your stuff and become a street preacher. Maybe he is. I don't know. I, I am not the Lord. And if that's what you're feeling called, then absolutely who are you to not uh, follow God's will in your life? But probably not. God calls us in the normal daily experiences we have, where you go to work, where you relate with people, the things that you have, the influences you have, the spheres of your life, I, they're not the same as mine. Those normal, ordinary ways, we should be thinking, where can I sacrifice for God and give up my desires for Him? And what that looks like is probably very ordinary. It's very ordinary. See, really, it's about the inner position of the heart. That's what Paul's getting at. You remember the parable of the rich young ruler? And he went away from Jesus sorrowful because Jesus said, yeah, you can follow me. Just give it all up. The man had a bunch of stuff. And it really wasn't even about his stuff. It was about his heart. At the end of the day, he counted his stuff in his earthly positions and, uh, and, and, and possessions of greater value than the heavenly mercies he could receive. So are we open-handed with our time and our talent and our treasure? Do we view in our heart of hearts that these things are ours? Or are they a gift of God to be dedicated and available for whatever means he chooses? You know, only you can answer that question. I, I certainly would never want to try and answer it for you. Again, this is not a legalistic thing. Please hear me. We're saved by grace alone. I can't peer into your heart and look at your motives but I can tell you, you can fake it. You can fake it. And you can probably fool a lot of people if you want to, but you never fool God. And this leads into the warning, part three. Part three is the warning. This is the last part. The warning comes to us in part through simple observation and also the imperative in verse two. Let me read verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to the world. That's the warning. You are either putting your life at the disposal of God or you're putting your life at the disposal of sin. Don't overthink it. At any moment, you're either living your life for God or some other master. Why else would Paul have to even make this request to Christians? I mean, just, just sit with me for this on a moment. He's written 12 chapters. He's written a lot of stuff up to this point. He says, hey, I want you to think about God's mercy and I'll give your lives over to God. Oh, by the way, but here's a warning. He's writing to Christians. There's a warning here. That's, we should take note of that. We're Christians. We're, we should be like, wow, okay, if he needed to write this to these guys, we need this as well. It's possible, in other words, is what Paul is saying. It's possible for us to live as marginal Christians. Saved? Absolutely. 
because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the works of another. But on life support, if you will, with our devotion to God and our service to the Lord, it is completely possible to be a lukewarm, marginal Christian just going through the motions. Paul doesn't want that. So he urges us to live holy for God in light of Christ's mercy so we don't waste our days as lukewarm believers content with spiritual milk and half-hearted love for the Lord. What a waste. I just don't want to, I don't want to be 20 years from now thinking, boy, I just kind of faked it. You know, I went through the motions. I just don't want to do that for my life. And Paul doesn't want that for you, and I know you don't want it for yourself. You see, the way a Christian becomes bankrupt in the service of the Lord is by being conformed to the world. That's why he warns us. There's not a quicker way for us to become bankrupt and devoid of spiritual fruit in our life than to conform ourselves to this present world. In fact, the world in this verse, it means our present age. In Galatians 1.4, Paul calls it the present evil age. The world is always in the New Testament synonymous with the wicked and the unrighteous. And Scripture clearly draws a line in the sand between the people of God and those who are not the people of God. And these two groups are in opposition to each other, and they will be until the day Christ comes again to conquer all of his and our enemies. You see, the world is the mass of humanity that lives outside of Christ's visible kingdom and lives in disobedience to his rule and reign. Yeah, these are people we should love. Yeah, they're created in God's image. But make no mistake, they are opposed to Christ and his kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is called the God of this world, bind, blinding the minds of unbelievers and keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And so we see the world is characterized by disobedience to God, a blindness to the gospel, some sort of rule by Satan, which is kind of hard to understand, and opposition to God's people. That's the world. That's the world that Paul is talking about when he says don't be conformed to it. Of course we should never be conformed to it. A Christian can never be friends with the world. It is the enemy of Christ in his kingdom. And yet, Paul warns us that even us, the redeemed of God, can be stained and slowly start to conform ourselves to this world. This world that stands in opposition to Christ. People like us who sit in pews on Sunday. People like me who wear fancy robes on Sunday. All of us. Instead of being conformed to the world, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's, that's the fix he gives. And the transforming of your mind means that your whole self, your heart, your true self, who you are as a person is actually changed. It's transformation. Of course, this type of, this type of heart change is not something you, you perform on yourself. It's not something you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is, it is a change that happens because the mercies of God are in your life. For a person to be able to discern what is good and, and to follow the will of God, a renovation of the mind is necessary. And this only comes through the mercies of God in your life. Detect the theme? Mercies of God. Renewing your mind, it looks like reminding ourselves daily of his mercies. It means studying his word to learn the depth of our sin and the, the greatness of his grace and love for us. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, our minds are renewed when we take advantage of the means of grace. In a moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper. That's one of them. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us these means of grace to continue the, the transformation of our minds. You know, I work for the Marine Corps, and they have this concept. When Marines go to boot camp, they become a completely different person. 
they kind of tear him down. Uh, and there's a lot of yelling in this part of that, as you can imagine, a lot of push-ups and running and things like that. And after, you know, three months or so, there's a whole process. It's kind of secretive, but I don't want to give it all away. But they become a Marine. They become transformed into this other being, this mythical being that wears an eagle globe and anchor. And they finally get orders to a unit somewhere, and they go and they they ship out, and they they report for their duty. They learn their job. But there's a very important concept that the Marine Corps has, has, you know, codified in their instructions and their training, which is they call it sustaining the transformation. This young person has been transformed from a civilian into a Marine, but they know that if there's not some sort of sustaining of that transformation, the person can kind of revert back, revert back. And you know what? It, It strikes me that that's true for Christians as well. We have literally been transformed, amazing grace, by God's Spirit. And that, that sustaining of that transformation is something that has to continue to happen. And God gives us means of grace to do that. And that's what we're doing this morning. That's what we're doing this morning. We're renewing our minds in the mercies of God. We're re-steeping ourselves, repainting the walls. Like a, the metaphors don't stop, okay? But you get the idea. That renewal must happen over and over. You know, if you don't read the Word of God regularly, you will at best be a weak Christian who's easily deceived. I know that sounds harsh, but it is the truth. If you scroll more Insta than you scroll the Bible, your, your life's probably out of balance. And so it kind of comes full circle, though, doesn't it? The secret to the Christian life is to have your entire soul drenched in the knowledge of the mercies of God. Anything less will fall short and will never serve as motivation for a holy life. Friends, if you take nothing away from this but one thing, let it be this. Seek to know and live in God's mercies with all your heart. Cry out to the Lord to show you the depths of Jesus' love for you. Maybe you don't get it. Maybe it's just the fire's gotten a little weak. Take that to God in prayer. He can handle that. Say, God, show me your mercies. Show me the grace I've received. That's a prayer that is honest and true, and I believe God would would faithfully show you the depths of his love for you. Let me end with a quote from a man named Octavius Winslow, another old Baptist minister. And he wrote these passionate words on this topic. And I want to read you a quote because he just says it better than I could. He's much better with words than I ever will be. And I hope his words are the cry of my heart and your heart as well. So here's what he says. Blessed Jesus, your love like your agonies is an unknown and unfathomable depth. It surpasses knowledge. Let it rise and expand before me until it fills the entire scope of my soul's vision, occupies every niche of my heart, and bears me onward by its all-commanding, all-constraining influence in the path of a holy, loving obedience and surrender. Beautiful words. May you and I have the entire scope of our soul's vision occupied with the mercy and the love of our Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us. We thank you for your mercy. Father, we know we fall short, but your, your grace abounds. It is new every morning. And so, Father, we don't despair of our failings, but we run to Christ and to the cross, and we cry out, Abba, Father, help us. Lord, I pray this week as we go forth that you would put the knowledge of your mercies deep into our hearts and that we would live lives of sacrifice and surrender to you and to your kingdom. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.